This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel afraid, ashamed, vulnerable, or just really uncomfortable. My guest tonight is Dr. Jeannie Safer. We're talking as part of a series on coping with feelings of failure. Tonight we're going to be talking about the feeling that you're failing in therapy, or perhaps that therapy is failing you. Dr. Safer is a clinical psychologist with over 35 years of experience as a therapist practicing in New York City. She's the author of four books on subjects that are all hard to talk about, taboo subjects, the most recent of which is called Death Benefits, How Losing a Parent Can Change an Adult's Life for the Better. Are you, are you there, Dr. Safer? I am. Welcome, welcome back to Safe Space. I'm delighted to be here. So glad to have you. It's so wonderful to have a program like this. Yes, well, of so course. So much after my heart and everything that you know matters to me. That's right. I try to have. I have to resist having you as my guest every week. <laughs> we have so many interests in common. So I want to just acknowledge your courage in speaking about this subject, especially as a practicing therapist yourself. And I want to start out by asking you if you could tell me a little bit about what what was it for you in your own therapy that just didn't seem to be amenable to being worked through in therapy? Well, the thing that I struggled with um, both before, if there was ever a before that I was in therapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as therapists or lifers, as you know, um, was a kind of fear. It, it had a specific uh, relationship to illness, but a kind of that I would get panicky in situations where other people would just feel, you know, uncomfortable. And... Um, and I would always, I would also feel like if I was ever sick, that it was definitely, you know, including a cold. I mean, literally, that it was, it was something that would never end. And um, it, it was, it's really been a very frightening, disturbing experience much of my life. And um, it was one of the many things that I wanted to work through in my uh, various therapies. And I'm, I'm a psychoanalyst, and as you know, you know, you have to go through your own analysis, which is essential to being able to deal with your own shame and anybody else's shame. And I didn't ever feel that this experience moved very much. And I, and I really tried everything. Um, I, I tried, oh goodness, in addition to four-time-a-week analysis for 15 years or more. Wow. Well, that was one treatment of 15 years, another of 10 um, my analyst died the first time. Mm. Um, I guess it was just too much. <laughs> uh. um, actually, it was very helpful to me. But um, in addition to these two therapies, uh, I really worked specifically with this. I went to a person for behavior modification. I tried EMDR about it. Um, I, I worked with a hypnotist. Uh, that, was, that was very useful. And I've done an awful lot of work trying to deal with this. Um, but the thing that was really striking to me is that, you know, when you feel these things as a person and particularly as a therapist, it feels like such a source of shame. I mean, how can I, what right do I have? How can I try to help somebody else with anxiety or fear if I struggle with it and haven't overcome it? Right. You know, what, with what authority can I speak? And, and, it's it's not even that I felt really that my patients would feel that way necessarily. It was it was a sense that I had with myself, and it it really has been. I, I think the most tormenting thing that I've ever experienced in my life. Mm, both it sounds like it had sort of two layers to it. One was the anxiety itself, 
which was difficult enough, but secondly, this feeling of it undermining your authority, your credibility in your yes. work. And and the kind of hopelessness about it, and there was something about it, and there, you know, and I, I'm I'm talking in the past tense, but of course it's not fully over. I mean, I think some of these things are, you know, in our DNA. But but um, something about the feeling that that here was something that I felt so hopeless about, and one of the things that's always striking to people about me is that they feel that I'm so hopeful. <laughs> Mm. You know, and and it's true. I mean, I'm not putting on an act when I'm when I'm talking to patients, but but here was this kind of secret despair about an aspect of myself, and it was kind of discrepant. Right. It you was know, like so compartmentalized off, so yes, different. Yes. And and it really could take me over, and and still to some degree. I mean, even with everything I've done with it, and and some some progress that I'm overjoyed that I've been able to make in the last year or so, but I'm now 62, and, and this has been a conscious struggle, certainly since I was about 10. So that's, that's a lot of years. Right. That is a long time. Yeah. So even when you first began therapy, what, in your mind, was that one of the hopes that you had, that therapy would help you with it? Um, I think I was more struggling with, with how to deal with, um, gosh... Know, with with trying to have relationships with men, with trying to make sense out of my uh, my sugar and the family, you know, things right, like that. Right, the regular but things. This was always part of that, partially because I'm from a medical background. My my father was a physician, and my aunt and uncle were. So I really come from that. And and um, and as I've discovered over the years, it had a lot to do with the kind of despair that I felt about about illness. When you say that, what do you mean? I came to realize, uh, one of my books was about my father, actually. It was called Forgiving and Not Forgiving, why sometimes uh, it's acceptable not to forgive. And I really thought about his experience of illness and, and many of the things that he may very well have communicated to me without saying them about his terror of illness. He was told when I was born that he was going to die within the year um, of congestive heart failure, and he died... 35 years later. He was told that the year that you were born. When I was born, yeah. So that shaped his whole ability to bond with you, presumably, to invest um, in not you. Not to bond with me, but I think to be able to live his life without being crushed under something. Uh-huh. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really put this together until he's been dead for many years now. But, but also this whole medical, you know, when, when you're in a doctor's family, the notion of conquering illness and, you know, and, and relieving it is, is just what you see and feel every day. Right. And I used to go with him on rounds to the hospital as a little girl. So, I, you know, the notion of, of relief was so much a part of it. And here, I couldn't do it for myself, and he couldn't either. And I think that was a big part of it. There's almost this family legacy of it. He, he couldn't get out from under it, and you couldn't yeah. either. And, and then, as you're saying that, it makes me think as... It's all, you know, therapeutic exchanges are um, that my mother was the opposite. There was never anything wrong with her, at least that I could see. Huh. So here she was, you know, totally without any problem. I don't think this woman was in bed or sick one day of the entire time I was a child. Right. I see. So there was no gray area of being no, no. moderately gray area sick. Gray was not a big thing in the safer family. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you didn't have any modeling of being moderately sick, having no. a cold, and being fine with it. No, none whatsoever. And um, it was either taken away by you know a magical father doctor, 
or or my mother didn't didn't have it at all and and I think all these things you know as as I've thought about this certainly shaped this but you know what was the most powerful thing about this and it was the sense that this was not amenable to change exactly I mean there was this conviction that I had I would say until I wrote my most my most recent book that I never even thought that it was possible I mean I did all the stuff to try to do you know fix it but Deep down, I never felt, I, I felt that there was a kind of unconsolability that was part of me, you know, which is why I would feel so anxious in these situations. And I mean, look, this is partially true. I mean, people have temperaments, and certainly I, mine is a very intense one, but it never occurred to me that this was anything that either could get better or that I could get any real help with. So it almost, it, you know, what comes to mind is Sisyphus. So there you are. Oh, yeah. You, you, you're, there's a hopelessness that you carry about it, but you are trying so hard. I mean, yes, 15 absolutely. years of analysis, you know, that's a level of commitment that is extraordinary. Four times a week. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so you're, you're both kind of convinced it's not going to work while you are pulling out every stop possible. That's right. And that's trying. Right. And, and the combination. And, and I never feel that it's not going to work for my patients. You know, mm. but almost never do I feel that there's something that they can't work through. And, and this, this kind of dichotomy was really part of, has been part of my life you know, as an analyst all these years. It seems like no wonder then that it got associated with shame because if if therapy really will work for others, but it won't work for me, then it's got to be something wrong with me that's the reason. Yes. I never doubted therapy. Never. Um, I came to some degree to doubt one of my therapists. And, of course, with, you know, twenty twenty hindsight, I came to understand, and we could talk about, you know, how, how I worked out some of this at some point, and, and what I understood about her and why she wasn't able to help me do it, because she actually had some of the same issues that I did in the same history that I did, um, which I only knew afterwards, of course. Right. Um, but it is, it's a terrible sense of shame to feel that you're trying to help somebody with something you haven't worked out and that you can't even see being able to. And I think sometimes about, uh, I, you know, I also have patients who are therapists, and I'm thinking of one woman particularly who's very gifted, but through a, a variety of reasons, she, she and I are the same age. She's never been married, and she's never really had a relationship that worked. And I've often thought, what is it like for her to work with somebody who's struggling in a marriage or a relationship? How does she feel? Right. How how does it not begin to mirror or she resonate with it inside? Yes. How can you know? You have to have a certain kind of feeling. And I think, by the way, that every therapist has these things. They don't get talked about, but every therapist, because we're all human, you know, and we all have struggles in our families, or we wouldn't become therapists. One of my teachers once said to me that therapists are people who need thirty hours a week of therapy. Absolutely, for the rest <laughs> of their lives. <laughs> well, and that's why they do it, because of course, in any good therapy, the therapist is also getting so much out of it. Oh, there's no question, and well, you know, it is. It's humbling in a good way because if you really face whatever it is that you find that's like this, it. It makes you really the peer of the person you're trying to help. Say, say, what do you mean? Because you and the patient are totally human, and one of you is not somehow superior in, uh, I don't know, being 
achieving non-anxiety than the other one. Right. I want to come back to that in a minute. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Jeannie Safer about the feeling of failing in therapy and what that's like as a therapist. So I want to come back to that idea of being a peer and um, not being superior to your patient or your client, because I think there's so many people come to a therapist wanting to feel as if the therapist has figured it all out. Well, longing to, but it's interesting that if you can present it as a struggle that you're having, um, it's possible to talk and help somebody with it when they know that you're struggling with it too. I, I don't mean like disclosing every every aspect of it. That's you know that's uh, selfish to do. But my patients know a number of things that I've struggled with, and I don't think it it interferes with them feeling that I can help them. I think it it has, makes them feel that I can empathize with them. Right. I mean, in some ways, it begs the question of what is it that makes a good therapist? Is it someone who's figured everything out? Well, if it's if it's that end, then we can forget about anybody being a good therapist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but it is really you know when you ha- when you look at the things that with all your work haven't changed, it's it really it's very troubling and it's very difficult and and I think it it has to be a sense of shame. Um, I mean, I wrote you know, in my last book about this, and one of the things I said it's it's like being an overweight personal trainer. Yes, <laughs> right. Mean, only 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 an overweight personal trainer in a way is so exposed in it. Yeah. Whereas a therapist can hide it, uh, or can think that they're hiding think so? it. No, I don't know. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I I always knew what my, what my therapist vulnerabilities were. <laughs> Did you? I mean, anybody that that you know, I think people know. Um, but I haven't, it, it's not, you know, it wasn't that I was worried so much about what my patients felt. Because as I said, I put that in a different category somehow, that I never questioned being able to help them, really. It was between myself and myself. So say more about that. What was that inner dialogue about it like? It was a feeling of something being unconsolable. I mean, I felt like, my goodness, you know, I'm really quite healthy. Like, if I feel this way about you know, like a mild illness or something, what is it going to be like when I face the rigors of, of aging and, and serious illness? I see. So, so there was a terror. Yeah, there was a terror like, boy, it could be so much worse. Yeah. And not only that, it probably will be eventually. Oh, of course. Right. Of right. course. And what reason? It's the feeling of not having, you know, no matter how hard you try, not having certain resources and that's that's the experience. I mean, it doesn't. I don't think I've ever really defined it so much as a failure as as a source of such pain and terror. You know, it's really more like that. Right. That that is a better way to say it. Um, yes. But I know. I remember a specific experience with a patient whom I love very much, and and she has struggled with intense anxiety, and particularly about others being ill which luckily isn't the way mine manifests. <laughs> if, she, right. if she was so worried about herself being ill, then I think it would be harder. But, you know, I've thought, my goodness, I see the intense anxiety state she gets into, and I think, sometimes I think, how can I relieve her, you know, when, when no one has relieved me in a sense, and I don't know how to relieve myself. Yeah. And you know what's so strange about it? It doesn't stop me from being able to do it. I mean, even though I have always have doubts about it, 
it, I see that it works. I mean, that she feels better, that um, I've, I've kind of led her through it and helped her through it. And, and she'll say to me, how can I get through this? How can I get through this? And somehow, and this is with that medication, by the way, somehow we do. Do you wish you, you had yourself as a therapist, Jeannie? <laughs> Well, I have thought on occasion, and I think I said it. I said it once, Vishen. I said, "Luckily, you have a better therapist than I did." <laughs> <laughs> you said that to her. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting though. In, in in the last number of years, I've I think I found a way to use my vulnerabilities more than I ever have before. I want to ask you about that because you do. You've written four books, each one of them with taking enormous personal risk where you share some of your deepest struggles. And this is certainly not how I was trained. No, it wasn't how I was trained either. I, I, my background is classical Freudian. Right. So there's this idea about non, you know, the blank screen right. and non-self-disclosure, and you've clearly broken those therapy rules, those therapy well, Oh, absolutely. And you know what's interesting about that is I think for some people I'm just not the person because of that. They don't want to know or they can't. But for a lot of people that come to me, I think that's what brings them. And it's, it's a relief that somebody has been there or is there. Right, as you were saying before, so your capacity for empathy is something that really works for them, and they want that from you. Well, I think people have all kinds of fantasies, as you said before, about about the perfection of therapists. Right, you know, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about that about my my second analyst who who was German in background, and um, she had a white office. Okay. Now, you haven't seen my office, but I, the walls are white, but there's nothing else that is. There, there are five um, kilims in the place, and there's not one piece of wall that's not covered with something. So it's, okay. it's not a bland room. But her place was very, you know, it was everything was in its place. And um, it never bothered me. I didn't feel uncomfortable about it. But she had a propri- propriety, a Germanic quality better. And she told me a story because before she was my analyst, she was my supervisor. And she, one time she came into a session laughing. And I said, what is it? And she said, a patient of mine said that she walked in and she saw, she said, even your dog is well-behaved. Your dog is sitting perfectly still, you know, under the table. And she mm. said, I couldn't help it. I had to turn to her and said, that dog had just shit all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, there is, there is no perfection in this kind of thing, but, but I think a certain vulnerability, and, you know, and is part of empathy. And I found that my work has really intensified and actually speeded things up through controlled disclosure. I mean, through disclosing my, my own struggles. It's such, it's, in some ways, it feels like such a compassionate model of therapy because if I'm coming to a therapist and I imagine that they are, you know, Josephine Wise Woman, and I'm like the <laughs> schmuck who can't figure it out, yes. then I, I'm always feeling one down. I'm always feeling ashamed of myself. I think everybody does. As the weak one. Yeah. And the structure of therapy itself feeds that and it reinforces does. it. There's no question. Right. So so when you first started making this choice to share your vulnerability with your clients, your patients, did you, I mean, was your heart pounding? Did it feel like yes. a really At risky... First, uh, 
my first book was was called Beyond Motherhood: Choosing a Life Without Children, and it was based on an article that I wrote. And that first article, which came out in I think '89 or something like that, I asked for it to come out in, in August under a pseudonym. Right when all when everyone was on vacation. Right. <laughs> and under right. a pseudonym. Yes, I get it. And what was interesting is that the the publication. Um, it was called Seven Days in New York City. It was, it was kind of like the Village Voice for the, the older generation that used to read The Voice. That was the most mail they ever got about a piece. And I decided to write a book about it, and that was the moment. It was like where, coming out of the closet. Where I, real, yeah, where I said, all right, got to do this. I, I, I have to write this. And did you have inner demons inside that were saying, like, how dare you? I can't believe you're doing this. You're making a terrible mistake. No. Your supervisors will ostracize you. No, actually, after a certain point, that vanished. It really vanished because I thought, whoever's going to ostracize me for, you know, for for writing my heart and soul, uh, you know, let them do it. Mm. And, and did you and, and did you in fact encounter that later on when it came I, up? Some of it, but but mostly I had people. You know, I mean, I have I have like two hundred. It was letters, not emails, at that point from women all over the world saying that it was for the first time they felt that anybody understood how they felt, and I didn't need anything more than that. Right at that point, who cares what your supervisor thinks? Yeah, and actually, my super. You know. I, I think I'd, I'd been lucky enough to have supervisors who were really who were really proud of me for it. <laughs> I can imagine. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm talking to Dr. Jeannie Safer about the experience of being vulnerable as a therapist in therapy and having your own struggles, not being the put-together therapist that perhaps we imagine. So I want to shift now because in your most recent book, Death Benefits, you talk about how it was actually the death of your mother that began to open this door that that years of therapy had been unable to open, and that in fact one of the benefits of her death. That's right. Was it, it, so tell me more. How did it that was happen? Totally and completely unexpected. When I started to write that book, it was based primarily on thinking. I had seen people in my practice, you know, uh, blossom after their parents' deaths, and I thought, okay, this one isn't going to be so autobiographical. Until I started writing. All <laughs> right, and. I, what I realized is that one of the reasons that I felt unconsolable is that I hadn't been consoled and that I realized that I had a mother who really couldn't do that because nobody had, had consoled her. This is a, a summary of like 75 pages of, you know, what I, what I went through and, and as a result, and that I couldn't let her know that during her lifetime and I couldn't know it myself. So I had to feel that it was me that couldn't do it. And one of the, the thing that helped me get there was that I realized, you know, as I was, I was saying before about thinking that this was not fixable. Yes. And I remember thinking to myself when I was writing, you know, kind of at white-hot autobiographical intensity, why do I think this is unfixable? And I never think anything with patience is unfixable. Right. Why should this be exempt? Right, what's so, what's so special about what's me? The, yeah, I mean, why am I like anything else that people say? You know, and I thought this has to be something that I have to maintain. Now, there's where therapy helped. Yes. That I have the ability to think like that from 5,000 years and a million dollars worth of therapy. You know, I could say to myself, wait, at, at a certain point when I can get away from it, wait a minute, you know, there must be reasons why I 
make the assumption that this can't be fixed. And that's when I started looking at my mother and my relationship with her. And as a result of that, one of the things I've been able to do, and I really feel joyous about this, is to seek consolation from other people. So you couldn't, was that, would that have been like disloyal to her? Yes. She had to be the source. And so that the kinds of fears that I felt terrible shame about, you know, uh, one of the things I found that I was able to say, one of them was, was uh, learning to breathe on both sides and swimming. I, I started to, to study swimming seriously. And uh, bilateral breathing, if you haven't taught, been taught, that was really hard. And my teacher was 26, right? And I said to her, you know, this really scares me. I'm really afraid. And she said, everybody is. What a great answer. <laughs> there, there it was. And then she stood there with me and, and said, well, did you get some air this time? And, you know, and, and it was like magic. It was like having the, the mother as an infant that I didn't have. And this, was, this, this happened only after your mother had died. Yes. I think I was only able to, to seek those things when our relationship was no longer riveting to me the way it had been. So the bonds of that loyalty, that obligation, yeah. were so strong, and, yes. you, and you didn't even know it. Impenetrable. And because I, I really feel that when you're looking in someone's eyes, you can't see behind their head. You can't see who they are. And you, know, you, you asked a question before, and I know we don't have too much time, about how, you know, how this changes. And what, what changes, what, what her death allowed me to do was to step back and to start thinking about this. And seeing it, literally, physically seeing it, having a perspective on it. And I think that that has sowed the seeds of being able to be consoled. You know, which, and once you feel that, the shame doesn't have such a hold on you and you don't have to to hide it from yourself even. You don't have to hide it so much. Right. It's because it's just, it's just human feelings. It's just, you know, it's just fear. Right, right. And if you're allowed to receive, I mean, so you obviously got a sense that for you to turn to someone else and be consoled would was terribly threatening to her. She needed to be the one who could do yeah, that. She for needed you. to be the one, and I needed her to be the one. And since she couldn't do it, my only conclusion was, well, there's something about me that no one could do it. Right. So there's and I, the shame. And I found in the book there are also examples when I went back to think about now where did this come from, and I saw things about her, and I and I had memories of things including, by the way, a suicide attempt on her part, several. That you hadn't that, remembered before. Uh, well, I had, I had known and put aside, like you do when, when things don't fit your pattern of what you're supposed to think. Uh-huh. So I really was able to reconstruct, with real sympathy, I think, um, why she wasn't able to do this and why we got caught in this um, out of love and out of fear together. So you, in, as you stepped back from her and started to see her more clearly, you accessed your own compassion for her. Oh, absolutely. As well as being able to receive it from others. And, and actually also some compassion for myself. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I mean, this, really, they I were thought, perhaps... This is just, you know, so I'm a terrified child in certain ways. You know, and my 27-year-old mother, you know, was able in many ways to help me with it. And, and a wonderful addition to that is um, I'm, I'm going to face the next level of fear. I'm going to take an, an open water swim course when she's going to be one of the people there. And that's another thing I'm terrified of, swimming without knowing where you're going and all these things I don't know how to do. So you're, and you're I risking feel like it. If she's going to be there, 
I'll be able to do it. Which is a feeling that children have with their mothers all the time, except for me. Right. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So yeah. we're going to have to end in a second, but I want my last question for you is, having come through this and having been able to get this not through therapy but through her death, does that change how you work as a therapist? I think it, it has made me really passionate about helping people use their parents' deaths and prepare for their parents' deaths as a source of solace and, and perspective and insight, yes. That's so wonderful. Very actively. So, Dr. Jeannie Safer, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe you, Space. You are welcome. Such a pleasure to speak with you. This is Dr. Ann on Safe Space. Um, this, uh, if you have a request or a suggestion for a future show, please email me at Dr. Ann WMPG at gmail.com. That's dr.anne at WMPG at gmail.com. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison. And next week, please tune in on Wednesday at 730. I'll be talking about failing at celibacy.